You're listening to the best of the BuzzMeter podcast with Howie Kurtz. It's the Media BuzzMeter with Howard Kurtz. We begin on this Veterans Day, and thank you to those who have served, and we remember those who are no longer with us, with a very, very important story. I mean, it must be an important story because everybody everywhere is just reporting this. And if you hadn't heard this news, it is that Paul Rudd is the sexiest man alive. That according to People Magazine, which does this every year. And the media go crazy over this stuff. Look, I like Paul Rudd. I've seen some of his movies. I've heard a couple of his interviews. He seems like a smart guy. Yeah, he's sexy. Okay, fine. Great. Terrific. But Dan Abrams had a great riff about this, about how all of these networks and you know websites and so forth, not only reporting this news, but using the same anecdote from the People magazine press release about how he'd like to attend uh, sexy dinners with others who have won this coveted award. Look, this entire thing is just a made-up bit of PR by People magazine to draw attention to the magazine. That's okay. I mean, you could argue the Times Person of the Year is very similar. Uh, but, you know, it, it's so subjective. It, you know, who was the runner-up? But what if the jury, who was the jury here anyway? Uh, anyway, uh, I did want to share that Paul Rudd news because apparently it's pretty hot stuff. Uh, um, Donald Trump was speaking to a closed-door gathering of Republican donors on Monday night. And he said the following, as reported by somebody who spoke to people who were there. We need nationwide boycotts of companies that don't believe in Republican and conservative principles. We're not going to buy their product if they're not going to buy our policy, if they're not going to respect us. Watch how quickly these companies will change if we do this, and we're going to boycott the media that doesn't treat us fairly. Now, as far as the media, I mean, I think that already happens. I think anybody who thinks that... uh, particular news outlets, media outlets uh, that don't give at least something resembling a fair shake to the GOP side, to the conservative side, they may just ignore them or they may hate read them, I suppose, or hate watch them. Um, But think about this for a minute because this was the kind of thing if Trump had said this when he was president, there'd be a week of debates. Has the president gone too far? What does he mean boycott? Does he want to put these companies out of business? Uh, What uh, right does does a leading public figure have to call on the American people to stop buying the products of some company that may just be trying to, you know, um, make some money for its stockholders and fill uh, the need for people who want to buy uh, hamburgers or pizza or washing machines or computers, you name it, just because they don't agree with Donald Trump politically, and, and everybody would have gone nuts. And, you know, there would have been the conservative side would have said, of course the president is right because uh, we have free will and this is our freedom to do this. And it's true, you can boycott anybody that you want. Um, but as it is, saying it as a former president, not getting all that much attention. It's just a reminder of how, you know, just when we would all be focused on, you know, some vote on the Hill Infrastructure Week, for example, or foreign policy thing, Trump would come out with something like this, not this exact thing. And, you know, the media would just spin out. Sometimes he would do that deliberately to change the subject. Sometimes he would do it just because he was speaking off the top of his head. But I, can you imagine the reaction on the right if President Biden 
was even speaking at a closed-door Democratic fundraiser and said we should boycott companies that don't agree with Democratic and liberal principles. I mean, heads would explode. I, I can't imagine Biden doing that, but if he did. All right. Also in this same uh, fundraiser, uh, uh, Trump ripped the House and Senate Republicans who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, saying they gave Joe Biden a win. You know, not I tried to get uh, a bill for four years and couldn't. Uh, maybe this is good for our country. Mitch McConnell's out there in Kentucky. Here's the Senate minority leader saying um, this is a great day for Kentucky and there's a bridge there that's been overcrowded for years. Uh, this is going to finally help and all of that. Um, you know, I always keep an eye on the COVID figures because we all have the impression that after the horrible, terrible, uh, no good and very bad Delta surge that it's all been coming down. And it's true. It came down from a high of about an average of over 160,000 new cases a day to about low of about 70,000. But now it's been stuck there and it's kind of been creeping back up. So the current average for, per day of new COVID-19 cases is over 76,000. That's up 7% just in the last couple of weeks. Fortunately, the number of deaths average uh, per day has actually drifted down a little bit, it seems to me, uh, over 1,200. It had to be hovering at around 1,400. Look, none of this is good. You don't want to see anybody get it. Fortunately, now we have vaccines available for kids. Uh, we have companies coming on the market now with pills to help you treat COVID so that it's not just this untreatable disease. But I don't quite understand why it's drifted up again, and it's a little worrisome as we head into some of the colder weather this November. All right, story number one. Now, ordinarily, the idea of me leading with inflation would be, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, it's a great um, debate topic for economists, not so much average people, but it's becoming a really hot political issue. And I think, and this, this was a factor in the Virginia governor's race, and it's popping up more in the polls. I think the elite media, you know, consisting of, let's just say, people who are at the very least upper middle class in places like L.A., San Francisco, New York, Washington, you name it, um, they're just not as sensitive to the changes. I mean, nobody likes inflation, but, you know, if gas goes up, they pay it, Right. Yeah, riding around D.C., uh, just as an example, I'm seeing gas as high as it, 429 a gallon. It's a lot higher than it used to be. And then there's all the supply chain stuff. There's a lot of reasons why inflation is going up. In fact, the new figures came out the other day, and inflation uh, is right now at an annual rate of 6%, just over 6%. That is the highest rate of inflation since 1990. For some of our younger listeners, I mean, this was a huge issue. Uh, particularly in the late 70s and very early 80s. I, I think it contributed to uh, Jimmy Carter's defeat because during the end of his term, we had what was called stagflation, which the economy wasn't growing very much, but at the same time, inflation was double digits. Inflation was as high as 12% a year. And think about that. You make maybe the same amount of money, and the next year, you know, I guess at 12%, your dollar could only buy 88 cents worth of the same products, materials, etc., uh, this became uh, a national obsession, and rightly so. And finally, Ronald Reagan, appointing uh, a very tough Fed chairman, was able to break the back of inflation. And it's, you know, blipped up now and then, uh, er, uh, as we see with the, how high it was in 1990, which would have been 
during George H.W. Bush's term, but it is something that kind of eats away. And it means that if you get a raise at work, the raise is, is either uh, more than eaten up or totally eaten up by the rising prices. So Politico has an interesting piece about the Biden dilemma. President Biden is trying to convey that the economy is doing great, though its greatness still isn't all that good, that his massive infrastructure bill is historic, but far more spending is needed and soon, and that even though America has bounced back from the pandemic better than other countries, its recovery is nowhere near complete. Okay, if you're seeing some mixed messages there, you are very perceptive, my friends. Uh, presidents rarely find themselves trapped in such obvious and politically perilous limbo as Biden uh, finds himself. He has to convince the country, says Politico, that things are on the right track when most voters, according to polls, say things are on the wrong track. Though the White House officials cheer the more than 5 million jobs added since February. Obviously, that comes from a, a low because of the pandemic. 5 million jobs added just since February. The stock market, over 36,000 on the Dow, uh, record-breaking uh, stock prices on all the indexes. And by the way, that helps a whole lot of you know teachers and nurses and others with 401k plans. It's not just rich people. But this has been tempered, as political points out, by the jump in wholesale prices, rising gas prices, worker shortages, I read the other day that there aren't enough truckers uh, out there to deliver all the goods that we need, supply chain bottlenecks. So um, this has been a problem since um, a few days ago when we had the Labor Department figure on the 6.2%, I believe it was, inflation. So administration officials are trying to say, hey, look, we're doing a lot of things. Biden went to the port in Baltimore yesterday, uh, and yet... At a time when inflation is becoming a real kitchen table concern, and Biden has just passed the infrastructure bill, uh, more than a trillion dollars in spending, although he still hasn't signed it, and I don't know what's up with it. Maybe he signed it in the middle of the night and I missed it. You know, he was saying, this is urgent, we urgent, we have to do this by the deadline, and then, you know, the money can't flow until the bill becomes law. In any event, um, in a speech he gave to Democratic Party activists, he said that, he acknowledged that too few people are feeling the progress uh, while he's been in charge, even though wages are going up, but so are costs. Here's Biden. Everything from a gallon of gas to a loaf of bread costs more, and it's worrisome, even though wages are going up. President saying many people remain unsettled by the economy, and we all know why. They see higher prices. Well, you know, it's, it's a really tough balancing act. And for Republicans, there's no balancing act at all. The party is really pounding away every single day at the rising prices of everyday goods, especially gas prices, um, a way of telling you you're worse off under Joe Biden. Republican groups have spent nearly a million dollars on Facebook ads that mention inflation and rising costs. The Biden administration position was that the inflation was transitory. But now it looks not so transitory. And this reminds me, I mentioned George H.W. Bush earlier, when he was running for re-election in 1992. We were coming off a very deep recession. And he kept saying that the recession was over, or it was almost over, we were getting out of it. Officially, it was not deemed to be over by economists. Uh, and a lot of people either were not feeling the effects of a better economy, or at least their perception was that the economy, whether it was in their own personal lives or the economy as a whole, was not getting better. Actually, when we look back, and sometimes, you know, economists come in and they revise the previous quarters, it turns out the recession did end 
Uh, don't hold me to the exact timing here, but I think at some point in the first part of 1992. But it didn't matter politically because people felt like um, the recession was still going on. It was a very sort of pessimistic outlook. And that undoubtedly helped Bill Clinton beat the incumbent president at that time. Right now we have 4.6% unemployment. I mean, that is phenomenal, a phenomenal low rate, especially coming out of the pandemic and the envy of many countries. But if people aren't feeling that way, if they don't feel confident, like they can spend money, um, then that's a problem for the economy. And if you're the president, you want to take credit for the improvement on your watch, but you don't want to seem out of touch. That's the worst thing you can do. You don't know the price of a gallon of milk. You don't want to seem out of touch. And so that's why I think uh, Biden is kind of stuck in this box. All right, number two, all the cable networks had this on live all day yesterday, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse uh, for homicide of uh, two people in the riots last year, last summer, uh, summer of 2020, that is, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I got to say, you know, I'm like a whole lot of people, which is at the time, you know, the, the Kenosha riots were one of many following the killing of George Floyd. And what I heard about, read about at the time, uh, a kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, going, crossing state lines with a gun that he had illegally, at least in terms of crossing state lines, and getting putting himself in the middle of that powder keg, which, by the way, just an extraordinarily stupid thing to do, um, and then ending up in a situation where he fatally shot two people and wounded a third. Um, I assume, like a lot of people, that this was a crazy thing to do, and that undoubtedly he was guilty, because there is no dispute, and he does not dispute in the trial, that he killed two people. But this trial yesterday showed you how badly things are going for the prosecution and how unfair I think some of the past media coverage has been toward this 18-year-old. Um, for one thing, the prosecution so ticked off the judge, and some people are criticizing the judge, uh, by saying things that were not supposed to be said in the jury's presence, that, and then um, moving for a mistrial, the judge just absolutely barbecued the lead prosecutor. This is Judge Bruce Schroeder. Uh, I was astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence. In other words, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to let juries know the person hasn't talked because they could um, read something. Of it. Don't get brazen with me. And then everybody's seen the clips by now. Rittenhouse on the stand. He was mostly pretty calm and collected. And then when, when he was asked about you know, the actual, the first of the actual shootings, just completely dope, broke down, crying, hyperventilating. The judge had to stop the trial, give him time to compose himself, and let him come back. And as he talked about what happened, at the very least, it is a muddle. His perception was that he acted in self-defense. He talked about these guys who he shot, one trying to grab his gun, another making uh, threats against him, uh, charging at him. And look, obviously, that's the defense strategy. Just the fact of putting him on the stand is risky in and of itself because the prosecution can try to catch him in contradictions and all of that. But nevertheless, the odds, and you never can predict what a jury's going to do, but the odds of this 18-year-old 
man being convicted of homicide when he was obviously scared, frightened, perceived himself as his life being in danger, I think just got a lot longer. So National Review has a look back at some of the past coverage, and I think it's pretty telling. Tiffany Cross of MSNBC tweeted, honestly, how can this judge be removed? This is now. Uh, L.A. Mistel at The Nation uh, said, well, he, he can't be removed. And Tiffany Cross said, depressed, disgusted, but not surprised. Um, and so she paints him as a white supremacist. Uh, by the way, when the video came out from Kenosha, um, Joe Biden posted that and saying there's no other way to put it. The president of the United States, referring to Trump at that time, refused to disavow white supremacists on the debate stage last night. MSNBC's John Heilman called Rittenhouse arguably a domestic terrorist. And when we didn't know the facts, maybe that wasn't an outrageous thing to say. Uh, AOC said that what he uh, was able to post bail was indicative of protection of white supremacy baked deep into our carceral systems. Um, Steve Schmidt, a Republican strategist from, with, now with the Lincoln Project, or formerly with the Lincoln Project, said Rittenhouse was radicalized by Trumpism. MSNBC commentator Jason Johnson worried about the really disturbing things about this country racially before saying that Rittenhouse is the enemy. I mean, this goes on and on and on. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley called Rittenhouse at the time a 70-year-old white supremacist domestic terrorist. Um, I could go on. I think you get the point. Uh, an ABC News article called him an alleged white supremacist. And, and all of this is premised on the fact that what is this white kid going and doing and inserting himself into the middle of what certainly could turn into racial violence, which was hardly a stretch of the imagination since by that time there had been uh, urban riots and casualties in other major American cities. But all of this doesn't get around the fact that all three of the people shot by Rittenhouse, two of them fatally, were white. You can go on and on and on, and maybe the prosecution will prove that he had white supremacist views. I don't know. But unlike so many of the racially charged trials that America has been through, the George Floyd murder trial, um, going back to Trayvon Martin, going back to others where, you know, you can argue extenuating circumstances or not, um, usually there's a minority involved and the victim is often black. There's no getting around that. That's a shameful history. I mean, you can go back to um, the guy in Staten Island, whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, uh, who was selling loose cigarettes, ended up, you know, in some kind of chokehold or situation that caused him to die in police custody. Uh, similar situation in Baltimore. I could go on and on. But in this case, the defendant and the victims are all white. So for the press to make this into a totally racial situation, I think is wrong. And I think now that we're seeing the prosecution bungle this, and now that we're seeing the testimony of this guy who hasn't uh, spoken out in a very long time, it's just a very different picture. We'll see where it goes from here. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment.
Uh, number three, new poll out from Monmouth University. And, you know, critical race theory, we've talked about it. It's been a very hot issue this year. It kind of came up, and it, it absolutely did come up in some form or another in the Virginia governor's race, won by Glenn Youngkin over Terry McAuliffe, uh, having to do with what could be taught in public schools. So I made the case that, you know, in effect, Youngkin got a bad rap because he wasn't talking about banning books. He was talking about giving parents the right to have their kids opt out of material like sex explicit material that made them uncomfortable. Here's this Monmouth poll. It says that 78% of Republicans oppose public schools teaching about critical race theory. Well, okay, critical race theory, we can debate exactly what it means, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of, what it kind of means, bottom line, is teaching about the ongoing impact of racism that may have taken place in the past. Okay. Um, but then there's this question in the Monmouth poll. Do you approve or disapprove of public schools teaching about the history of racism? 43% of Republicans in this poll oppose schools even broaching that subject. And about one-third, 34% of that uh, subgroup, said they disapproved of it strongly. Only a slight majority, 54% of Republicans, said that schools should teach about the history of racism among Democrats. 5% opposed schools teaching about the history of racism. Uh, What a contrast that is. Um, The survey, according to the Washington Post, is just the latest to suggest that Republicans, at least a significant number of them, would like to take the history of racism uh, completely out of the classroom. Uh, Now, there was a USA Today poll that found that majority of Republicans did not agree with teaching about the ongoing effects of slavery, just 38%. But there was much broader consensus that that school kids should learn about the history of slavery. So... I find this kind of troubling because, you know, I think America is the greatest country on earth, but I think the history of racism, the history of slavery, uh, over which a civil war was fought, uh, the history of segregation and undeniable discrimination leading up to the civil rights movement of the 60s, is part of our legacy and going back to the founding fathers. Now, from there, I don't think that you can, you know, what's certainly debatable is, you know, trashing the country today because, you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Trashing the country today because of Jim Crow. This was a very long time ago. But can you can you understand America today without understanding that history? I don't think so. That's why I wanted to share those poll results. Uh, number four, looking at a Wall Street Journal piece here, the Justice Department yesterday sued Uber. Uber, you know, over the years got a awful lot of bad press and deserved an awful lot of bad press for the misogynistic bro culture there and a whole lot of other stuff. But this one is kind of a new low. DOJ says that Uber is breaking the law by charging wait time fees, you know, when the car shows up and you're not quite ready, to passengers with physical disabilities. Suit was filed in California as violating the Americans with Disabilities Act by charging fees to passengers who, because of their disability, need more time to enter a car. An Uber spokesman said the lawsuit was disappointing, 
company had been in talks with DOJ about how to address its concerns. We recognize many riders with disabilities depend on Uber for their transportation needs. Why we've been in active discussion. Okay, why did you get to the point as a company where you had to have active negotiations with the Department of Justice because you were doing this, you know, morally reprehensible thing? In order to make a few extra bucks, if you have to wait an extra five or ten minutes, uh, I understand it's frustrating for the drivers, but if somebody has trouble walking or is in a wheelchair or has some other disability, you see that as a profit-making opportunity? DOJ says that Uber began charging uh, passengers wait time fees in a number of cities back in 2016 and rolled it out nationwide. This begins two minutes after the regular Uber arrives at pickup spot. Um, And here is an acting U.S. attorney in the Northern District of California. Uber's wait time fees take a significant toll on people with disabilities. And Uber wants to defend this. Oh, we were talking to them about fixing it. Why did you let this be a problem in the first place? A good corporate citizen would not do this. And it's a whole lot of, it's just a big black eye for Uber. And, you know, will the suit be settled? Will Uber have to promise to do a better job? I don't know. But it should never have gotten to this point. Number five, you know, there's a lot of value in journalism, I think, of just having a good yarn. Just a good story. Just a story that people want to read and talk about. And so Politico did a fabulous job on this. You know, this is ongoing debate. I think I talked about it when we changed the clocks about daylight savings time. Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Should we get rid of it all together? Should we just stay on daylight savings time all year? Or should we just stick with the status quo? Um, And, you know, it's one of those stories that touches everybody because everybody's got to make sure they're on the right time. Um, But Politico has this piece about two guys behind the scenes or on opposite sides of this issue who despise each other. So one guy is named J.P., P-E-A. That's his real name. Uh, And the other guy is named Scott Yates. Scott Yates uh, has gone so far as to question whether J.P. uh, is actually his real name. He accused... P of operating several fake accounts on Twitter. P said, this was ridiculous. I don't have time for that. Uh, P says that Yates is a wealthy, powerful friend of Marco Rubio. Yates says, well, he consulted Rubio's office, but has never actually met any member of Congress. He accused Yates, this is where it just gets so juicy, of calling him after dark to make threats, producing notes he wrote contemporaneously in which Yates allegedly told him, here's the quote, You're never going to write about me, reply to my tweets or anything, or I'm going to make you so effing sorry. You don't even know. You think this is libel? Then get a lawyer. But I will ruin you. This is all over daylight savings time. Uh, Now, did he actually say those things? He denied ever threatening P. But he has a different recollection of the conversation. Uh, This is just like, this this is a movie here. There's a Netflix thing here. I got to tell you. Um, Yates says that he only called P up after P called a board member for one of his unrelated nonprofit groups, and P confirms that he did that in order to report what he deemed misinformation. So it's the Hatfields and the McCoys. You did this. No, you called me. No, I did that because you did. You told my board. No, 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 no. Uh, you threatened to f me up. Okay. So Marco Rubio, who uh, 
is involved here actually has a bill um, to make daylight savings time permanent. And I just the name of it just cracks me up because it's so congressional. The Sunshine Protection Act. You know, it's like Sunshine Freedom Act. We must not inhibit the right of American citizens to bask in the sun for extra hours. The Sunshine Protection Act. So now uh, we get into all the back and forth here. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine says we should eliminate daylight savings time because standard time better aligns with the human circadian rhythms. Daylight savings advocates say it would help people with their moods. You'd feel better and prevent crime, by the way. Then there are the people who own golf courses, surveyed by the National Golf Course Owners Association. You had no idea this was such big business, right? Found that its members overwhelmingly support the adoption of permanent daylight savings, according to the group official. Um, just one extra hour could mean up to 10% additional revenue, this person told Politico. Uh, now, there have been these movements before. Back in the 1970s, I actually forgot about this. The country uh, briefly switched to permanent daylight savings time because there was an energy crisis and oil prices were out of control, gas prices were out of control. But that would prove to be unpopular and it was abandoned. But now, of course, it's coming back. So now, back to the to our guys P and Yates. Um, since the beginning of 2020, Yates put up blog posts suggesting that P was getting funding from, among others, the pharmaceutical industry, and calling him a sock puppet. In that infamous phone call, which was last January, Yates said he told P he would take down those posts if P stopped interacting with him on Twitter. P agreed, but did not follow through, Yates said. So he never took the post down. So it's just like, you take your post down. No, you take your post down. No, you're a bigger a-hole. <laughs> the feud has grown to such an extent that P said he has consulted lawyers. When asked why it has gotten to this place, Yates said he had the same question. It was supposed to be fun. Quote, I would love it, Yates said. If somebody could figure out what his deal is, why he's attacking me, why he's so intense about it, why he's doing all this stuff, it's really mysterious. It was supposed to be a lighthearted thing. So, you know, it's just shining a light, shall we say. Maybe even, say, shining some more sunlight on uh, one of these behind-the-scenes feuds with different lobbyists. And it doesn't, it doesn't even seem like these guys are big-time lobbyists or making much money at this. But they hate each other, and there are all these other groups, all to decide the simple question whether every early November now, which was later than it used to be, we turn our clocks back, and every spring we turn our clocks ahead so that we can enjoy more sunshine. I happen to be a pro-daylight savings guy, but how did it come to this? I mean, seriously. Hey, I hope you enjoyed today's proceedings. Would love if you would subscribe at Apple iTunes or on your Amazon device, good Google Podcasts, whatever suits your fancy. We will see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.